0: This content may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion advised. I had the distinct prickly crawling sensation of being watched when I would take her out, but I couldn't tell what was genuine and what was my own fear and paranoia.
1: These are the only times in my
2: life that I have ever experienced anything like this. Five whole minutes of watching whatever the hell that was seemed like a lifetime. From Disturbed Media, join your host Chad for true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events.
3: This is Disturbed.
4: Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. This week, I'm bringing you four true tales that will frighten and disturb. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror. We open the show hearing from Reddit user No Donut 487 featuring voice work by Sarah Thomas, and we're left wondering what could have happened...
0: In 2018, I lived with my partner and my German shepherd in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago. I was 33 years old, and our apartment was a fourth floor walk-up unit. Very typical low-budget Chicago rental in a changing neighborhood. The layout of our building is going to matter to this story. Our building had a total of 12 units. Mine and the three below me had a shared front entrance, and the other eight units were through a second entrance. All 12 apartments had connected back porches and stairs that shared a walkway to a rear gate, which led to an alley. From the front stairwell, there are windows on each landing to the back porches, so you can see the back door of my apartment when standing at the front door through the window. We had good relations with our neighbors, especially those that lived directly below us and shared our front door. This was the thing that saved all three of us, my partner, my dog, and me. My partner was in a touring band at the time, and would leave for weekends or four weeks at a time. And it was a scary thing for me because I was essayed and stalked by my ex in my teens and twenties. I always worried something would tip him off and he'd start stalking me again. A little less than a month before a two-week tour my partner had scheduled, I received a creepy Facebook message from that stalker ex from yet another new account. About a week after that, my car was broken into. The glove box was emptied, things were thrown around, but the only thing that was taken was a bag of dog treats. I had about $20 in change in the compartment between the seats and they left the money. I was on high alert at that point and very scared about the time I'd be alone during the tour. My partner was kind of irritated with me in the situation and felt that it was too last minute to cancel. Especially over what amounted to a bad feeling and a few isolated things that weren't direct threats. And truthfully, car break-ins are very, very common in Chicago. It's happened to me like 15 times and police usually do the reports over the phone and don't even come to the scene. What I found really strange was that the thief didn't take the money. There was a homeless man who had started camping on the boulevard nearby recently. My partner left for his tour, and I set up cameras and bought door braces for my front and back doors. Became completely nocturnal, unable to sleep at night. My poor dog developed diarrhea, maybe because she was picking up on my stress level. It meant that I was taking her down all four flights of stairs for her to go blast her bowels six or seven times a night. I had the distinct, prickly, crawling sensation of being watched when I would take her out but I couldn't tell what was genuine and what was my own fear and paranoia. Her diarrhea lasted an unusually long time, like three or four days. I was going in and out the main door a lot, feeling very scared, and I noticed that some of my neighbors wouldn't pull the door all the way closed so the lock could engage. I mentioned it to my downstairs neighbor one day, including that I was extra careful because of the stalker. He was supportive, Said he'd mention it to the other neighbors if he saw them, and I noticed that the door was locked more frequently after that. My partner came home at about 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. At about 8.30 a.m. that morning, my first floor neighbor's place was burglarized. He was a metalhead dude who collected instruments, sold weed and psychedelics, and lived alone. I guess he went out for breakfast and he left his door unlocked while he was gone. Someone had come in, eaten the leftovers in his fridge, took a coat and a pair of boots, and left a filthy coat and pair of boots, took his college diploma but left $500 in the same cabinet. They left all the expensive musical instruments and mixing equipment, left the drugs, but did take a set of keys. The keys were to the first floor apartment and a master key for the front door and the back gate. My neighbors ran into each other right after the break-in and the second floor neighbor said to go tell No Donut because she has a stalker. So my metalhead neighbor came up to let me know what had happened. My partner had just gotten home from his tour when he knocked at the front door. I jumped out of my skin, but looked through the peephole, recognized him, and the three of us stood on the stairs at my front door while he told us about the break-in. We jabber-jawed for a while, about 15, 20 minutes. While we were talking, we heard the front door open and close below us, but thought nothing of it. Then we saw a man climbing up my back porch steps to my back door through the window. There was no other apartment he could have been going to, and he had to walk past all 11 more accessible units on his way to mine. He was not my stalker. I did not recognize him, but his image is burned in my mind. He was wearing flashy black-and-white high-top sneakers, not the ones stolen from downstairs. His black coat was oversized and hanging off of his shoulders, we locked eyes through the window, and he froze halfway up the stairs to my back porch. He slowly took a cell phone and called someone as he slowly turned around halfway up the steps. He walked back down the stairs in artificially slow motion, like he was pretending to be nonchalant, and then bolted into a sprint as soon as he hit the porch below mine. My neighbor ran downstairs and dialed 911. My partner and I ran through the apartment to the back porch, and saw a sedan and a windowless van pull out of the sketchy building two doors down. Both cars floored it out of the alley. We didn't get the plates. But the cops said it wouldn't have mattered. There wasn't any crime committed and nothing concrete to justify stopping them. They very condescendingly explained this to me as they took my statement. My neighbor is the one who actually made the call and has the police report. My partner and I were just considered witnesses. For a long time, the thing that scared me the most was the tool that my neighbor found when he went running downstairs. It was a two-by-four piece of wood, cut to about two feet, but about six inches of it had been made into a handle. It looked like a paddle, and for a long time I couldn't figure out what it was, but I'm pretty sure it was a ram for the door jam locks. When I looked at my door afterward, it looked like the frame had been repaired. Like... It had been broken once before. It seems like they used the one master key to place their ram, get somebody at the back door to catch me if I tried to run out that way, and somebody else was going to come back around since they only had one key, and they'd break in my front door and go forward with whatever they had planned. When we caught them before they could catch me unaware, they seemed to have aborted the plan, I suspect they'd been watching me, especially while I was taking out my dog and figured that I was alone. It was pure coincidence that my partner had gotten home 30 minutes before all of this. I feel that we all could have been horribly injured, or worse, had we been trapped inside and they had gotten the jump on us. Nothing else ever came of it, except that my landlord refused to change the locks, but he did agree to let us out of our lease. I moved out of Chicago and now have added a younger dog I'm training to do some bite work. My house is surrounded by cameras and floodlights and wingnut neighbors. So whoever was on my back porch and whatever they had planned, let's not meet. You're listening to Disturbed. From disturbed media.
4: Next up, we hear from Reddit user Leaky Rivet, featuring voice work by John Patnode. And we take a look into the past.
1: I work at an oil refinery-slash-chemical plant in the southern US. I will not give the company name for obvious reasons. I work primarily around the rail yard, but we do handle businesses throughout the whole eastern portion of the plant. About a month ago, will not give the exact date as you would be able to find my place at work, I had completed my work for the night, and had taken the company truck to a part of the refinery that I was more likely to go unnoticed by my supervisor should they be driving around. This has been my go-to spot to hide from the boss and sleep away the remainder of my shift for the past two years or so I've worked here. This part of the refinery, there had been a relatively localized explosion that tragically took the life of a woman that had been employed directly by the owners of the refinery for about five years. She was attempting to fire up burners to restore power to the refinery during an emergency power outage. This took place exactly ten years before, on the same day and around about the same time in the morning. The area of the plant where this happened is still taped off and shut down to this day. On this night, while sitting in the truck, it had begun to rain very heavily. We had been in a relatively severe drought for the past several months, so the poor weather was welcomed by all, especially with the notice the planet sent over the radio, stating that there was lightning in the area, and to stop work and find the nearest substantial shelter. I was watching a movie on my phone and finding it hard to stay awake with the sound of heavy rain on the roof of the truck. Sometime in the very early morning hours, although I can't be exactly sure on the time, I was awoken from my half-sleep by a huge orange glow that completely engulfed me. It was so intense I couldn't open my eyes past to squint due to the brightness. I could only describe it as being very similar to staring directly into the sun. I immediately recognized that I was in the middle of an explosion. However, there was absolutely no sound, no heat and no fear. For a moment I questioned if I was still alive, but as the orange glow died down I saw a woman, completely engulfed in flames, running for about five or six steps before falling to the ground. Since that day ten years ago, there have been a number of pipes installed that run horizontally just above the ground in front of the furnace and meant to pass by it. She ran straight through them. I mean she ran straight through them like they weren't even there. And just as I saw it, it was all gone. The fire was gone, she was gone, the whole space was just as empty as before, and I was back to sitting alone in a truck, listening to the rain. I obviously couldn't believe what I had just seen. I, like everyone else at the plant, was familiar with what had happened on that day, and I knew exactly what I had just witnessed. I just couldn't wrap my head around how I had witnessed an event that had happened a full decade in the past. I drove back to our shop where I promptly clocked out and went out to my personal truck. I sat there for at least half an hour trying to come to terms with what I had just witnessed. After the initial shock wore off, I felt very indifferent about it. It didn't freak me out or anything. What I saw was just very matter-of-fact to me. Even still, though, I kept the story to myself because I figured there was very little benefit to telling anyone. An event like this is obviously hard to forget, especially in the only three or so weeks since it happened, but... I've tried not to dwell on it too much because I know I'll drive myself crazy trying to comprehend exactly why I was somehow able to witness such a well-known and tragic event from ten years in the past. Then last night, it happened again. We have a very small loading rack that sits in the back of the rail yard and hasn't been manned or used in years. Last night the weather was very foggy to the point you could only see lights from the refinery for about a hundred yards could only see objects for maybe twenty-five. I was driving the work truck down to a storage tank we have and talking on the phone to my mom about the whole trip she had taken to visit her mom in the next state over. As I turned the corner near the rack, my phone dropped the call. I didn't think too much of it, because service can be spotty in parts of the refinery, although this area usually has a pretty strong signal. Nevertheless, I figured I would just call her back after I had arrived at my destination. I happened to look to my left to glance at the rack. I never had the opportunity to use it, and it had different equipment than I am used to using as I often look at it when I pass in an attempt to picture how all of it worked. It sits about 50 feet from the road, so it's close enough that I was able to still make out details pretty well. As I looked over, I saw two men up there. They were wearing the old company uniform and seemed to be hooking up a large white rail car. These white cars are uncommon in our yard, but not unheard of. However, if we had one staged in this area, there is absolutely no way I would have not known about it, nor is there any way I would not have seen it any of the other ten or so times I had passed that area during the day. I could make out their faces well enough to know that neither of the men were anyone that currently works here. I also noticed the rack didn't look nearly as rusty and neglected as it usually does. It still had paint on it, and it didn't look overgrown or abandoned at all. That being said, everything was a little blurry. Like, instead of being in the fog, it was more like they were the fog. Like, they were part of it. Then, as I reached the next turn, they were gone. The people were gone, the large white car was gone, and the rack was back to its rusty normal self. Interestingly, the fog started clearing very shortly after this, although I can't say they were really connected. Once again, this took a minute to process, but I was not freaked out at all. I actually just thought it was really cool that I got to witness this time slip two times now. I asked a coworker that's been here nearly as long as I've been alive when the uniforms changed, and he said it was sometime during 2015. I don't know if I also saw them 10 years in the past, or if it was a different, more random amount of time. Our company has been here since the 60s, so there really is no telling. Both events seem to move slower than normal time. Not slow motion, just a little slower than normal. I don't know if this was actually time moving slower, or if my brain was just taking longer to process what it was seeing. These are the only times in my life that I have ever experienced anything like this. I don't know if it has something to do with the plant, the area, or me. I will say, the city where this took place is where one of the most well-documented UFO sightings slash abductions took place. Maybe this is just a place where odd things happen. I'm sorry if my thoughts seem jumbled. Reliving this while typing it has proven to make it difficult to keep my mind on track. I would love to hear of anyone else that's had a similar experience to this. I plan to post a couple other related subs, as I am really desperate to know I'm not the only one that has seen something like this.
4: This show is awesome gives you thrills, gives you chills. My name is Eric Hargraves, and I'm enjoying the podcast. Directed by Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon is a masterpiece and is now available on digital. Lily Gladstone, along Academy Award winners Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, give powerful performances in this riveting film based on a true story. Buy the epic Western crime saga Killers of the Flower Moon on digital, rated R from Apple Original Films and Paramount Pictures.
0: I'm Tanya Eby, and this is Disturbed.
4: Next up, we hear from Reddit user Linda Maiden, featuring voice work by Kiona Bashful Echo, and we're left baffled and confused.
3: This happened to me in December 1969. I'm a retired RN. I have experienced or witnessed many things that are beyond understanding, but I'm also a critical thinker, and my story changed my thoughts on our limited view of reality forever. I was with my high school boyfriend on a typical Friday date night in Jeffersonville, Indiana. After socializing with friends at the local hangouts, we would ride out on the rural backroads that were located between downtown and my home in a subdivision. There were dairy farms and cornfields on either side of the road for about six miles. The few homes along this stretch sat on the backs of properties, and there were a couple equipment paths that led to small open fields that were our teenager parking spots. Past that, the two-lane narrow road was heavily wooded, with no homes or cleared property for ten miles. This particular road had many curves and hills, which is typical for southern Indiana. Sparse population and teenage driving led to many accidents. There were no cell phones in those days, and the standard operating procedure if one saw an accident was to stop, help, and pray for another motorist to appear to flag down to send to the nearest house to call to the police and ambulance or transport the victims to the hospital yourself. It was a very cold December night and snow flurries began. We left our parking area immediately as my curfew wasn't to be missed. The remainder of our drive to my home was through the wooded area, and on straightaways we saw taillights quite a bit ahead. As we were approaching the second sharp curve, we saw headlights shining from ground level and at an angle towards us. We immediately slowed and pulled as far off the road as possible. The grille was damaged, and the passenger side had struck trees. The headlights in the otherwise pitch black night were blinding, A fully restored, beautiful 1956 Chevy had apparently tried to take the curve too fast and had lost control. The car was off the road and on its roof. My boyfriend, Greg, grabbed his flashlight, got another for me along with a first aid kit from the trunk, and we ran to assist anyone that might be injured. The headlights had kept us from seeing how many passengers the car held. I clearly remembered my heart pounding from the adrenaline and my mind fearing injuries as nobody was shouting back to our calling out and nobody was attempting to get out of the car. I could smell the strong odor of gasoline and burned rubber. The engine was running and making a knocking sound. Greg got down on his knees and opened the driver's side door and I opened the back. The car was empty. He reached up and turned the ignition. The engine was now off and the woods were silent. Nothing was making sense. Our headlights and flashlights were giving us light and we started searching for a possible injured person. The windows were rolled up and started to fog. Greg had already searched the interior. At this point, our assumption was that the driver must have gotten out and we just hadn't seen him or her. We didn't understand why they hadn't answered us when we ran to help or why the car had been left running. We continued to search for a person around the wreck. We tried to go into the woods, but the underbrush and steep embankment was impossible to climb. At this point, we decided whoever was driving may have just walked away. We got back into Greg's car and drove slowly three miles back, then turned around and drove slowly the next six, fully expecting to find someone needing a ride home or to a phone. We were relieved that the driver must not be hurt, but couldn't imagine why they didn't see us or how they had left on foot without us seeing them. No other vehicles had come down the road. At this point, the remaining road we drove was covered with snow and we saw no tracks. There were no houses. We went to my house where my parents were waiting as I was really late. Greg told my father what had happened and then described the car and how beautifully restored it was in case he knew to whom it belonged. The whole incident just left us baffled. By the next day, we decided that maybe there was a house in the woods or side road we missed. We both were just unsettled by it. We didn't know why we were worried about what now appeared to be a non-event. The next day, we went back to the scene of the accident. Both of us felt that we would find a house close by that had gone unnoticed or a side road. Something. We didn't understand why we were still dwelling on it, but little did we know that Quite the opposite was what we would find. The car was still there, but had been moved into a clearing in the trees. I will never understand what happened the night of the Chevy, whose taillights we followed, hit the curve and rolled. There it was, still on its roof. The damaged grill and front fender damaged. The accident on Friday night. Here we stood on Sunday afternoon at the car. The paint was faded. Body was completely rusted through over a majority of it. Tires were completely rotted and rooms were rusted. The interior was dry rotted and covered with mold. The windows were gone and the windshield was broken with a basketball sized hole full of vines growing into and out of the car. The embankment we had tried to search was now a clearing, and setting further back into the woods was a small abandoned two room shack. We later did a property search, but it only led us to owners that had bought acreage with a shack and a car on it. All we were left with was a lifetime of questions surrounding a cold December night. It has been years now, but that night still haunts me.
0: Looking for even more disturbed? Join us on Patreon for ad free listening, shout outs, and disturbing calls bonus episodes. At patreon.com slash Apple users can subscribe to Disturbed Media Premium directly in the Apple Podcasts app.
4: And we close out the show hearing from Reddit user Ground Up Gaming, featuring voice work by Matt Bradford. And we take a hunting trip.
2: This happened to me over the weekend during a hunting trip. I spent last night trying to Google and figure out what the hell I saw. I haven't found anything that doesn't seem like conspiracy craziness, so I'm open to any suggestions. A family friend has a few hundred acres in Tennessee. Once a year, my dad, uncle, me, and the guys in the family that own the land go on a week-long hunting trip. They have a cabin and a trailer tucked away at the edge of the mountain that we stay at during the week. There's no running water, and we use a generator for lights during the evening. Phone service is non-existent out there. The nearest town is Murphy, Tennessee, which is about 50 minutes away by car. Now, typically, we go out to the tree stands, ground blinds around 4 a.m., and then come back to camp around 9-ish, grab something to eat, and nap and head back to hunt until sundown. All week, my uncle and I hunted the same plot. It was on the east side of the property and took about 20 minutes by four-wheeler. We would park the four-wheeler in this big clearing, and then the ground blind I was hunting from is another 15 minutes or so by foot. I basically walk along this ridge line on the side of the mountain, and the blind is just set inside the underbrush of a tree line that overlooks an opening at the start of a river. My uncle was hunting in a blind that was a little closer walk and probably 30 minutes away from me. We hunted the same spot Sunday through Thursday. Thursday evening, we were all drinking beer and hanging out by the fire. My uncle, having not seen anything all week, wanted to go to the plot my dad was hunting. It's like a 30-minute walk from the camp, and you don't even need a four-wheeler to get there. I had killed a deer the first afternoon there and seen a bunch of does that evening right before sunset, so I wanted to stay where I was. So, Friday morning, after we hunted, I helped him pack up his blind and ride it out to the plot my dad had been on and helped him get set up for the evening. I took the four-wheeler by myself that afternoon and continued hunting the same ground blind. Same thing as I'd done all week and everything was fine. Nothing out of the ordinary, well, until Saturday morning. I'd gone up by myself again that morning, and watched a bunch of deer that crept up right before the sun started coming up. They were a bit further than I wanted to shoot, and when they got closer to the edge of the river, they weren't big enough or were too young for me to justify shooting. I watched them until they retreated back into the woods, and at this point it's probably about 30 am or so, and the sun is finally up. Now, this is embarrassing for me, but oh well. Having spent almost an entire week packed in this trailer with two other guys and no privacy, I uh, decided I was going to rub one out before I went back to camp. Every hunter has done it, and I don't care if you admit it or not. Now, I'm sitting there doing my thing, and even though nobody ever walks up on you while you're hunting out there, I'm still on high alert making sure I don't get caught by one of the guys while I'm doing this. I'm laid back in this chair inside the blind, basically one eye open, looking out in front of me, and every now and then peeking behind me through the mesh to make sure no one is coming. And that's when I started to hear crunching. I knew it was people footsteps, and I could tell it was more than one person. It was to my right, and the mesh of the ground blind and underbrush kept me from being able to see who it was. Calmly put my junk away, and quietly leaned up so when my uncle or whoever it was came up, I... I could act like I was just sitting there, hunting. Now keep in mind, we were so far out in the sticks that it, it never even occurred to me that it could be anybody other than someone I was hunting with. I listened to them walking, and finally I slowly stood up and poked my head out of the blind and peeked over the underbrush. It was four people walking towards the river in a line, but they were wearing these black cloak-looking clothes, like something they wear in Harry Potter, with these furry hats that covered most of their faces looked like some weird cult but the guy in the back of the line was completely naked i mean he looked disgusting his hair was curly and way too long and he had a big beard that looked nasty like it had a bunch of leaves and shit in it and meanwhile i'm bundled up with hand warmers in my pocket cuz it's like 25 to 30 degrees out the guy had to be freezing and no shoes either i mean this is thick underbrush we're talking about walking through it rocks jutting up from the ground and shit no sane person is out there and barefoot, much less completely naked. The sight of these guys was so unnerving to me that I was still standing there, frozen in an awkward half-standing, half-bent-over position with my head out of the blind watching them before it clicked with me that I needed to slowly sit down. At that point, they had passed the point of the blind where I couldn't see them and were walking with their backs to me towards the river. I slowly sat down and put my rifle in my lap and watched them all step ankle-deep into the river. They were facing side profile away from me towards the woods. I could see two of the clothed people moving around the naked guy, and one of them was standing still holding their arm out in front of them. I got the nerve to look through my scope at them. It looked like two of them were washing the guy with the river water, and the other one holding their arm out was holding a chain or something. The one holding the chain was talking, but way too far for me to hear any of it. After a few minutes, the two doing the washing stopped and all three of them held hands around the naked guy. and They started moving in a circle around him while he just stood there, staring ahead. They did this shit for five minutes at least. That doesn't seem like a long time, but five whole minutes of watching whatever the hell that was seemed like a lifetime. Just something of note, and this clicked with me recently. Whatever they were doing seemed time-based. My watch beeped at 9 a.m. and nearly gave me a heart attack. Well, there's no way they could hear it, but in my head I was picturing them all turning and looking at me. But right after my watch beeped, they stopped a few seconds later, so 9 o'clock on the dot. The three clothed people stepped back in a line in front of the naked guy and they walked back the way they came from, exactly like they came in. None of them talked or broke the line, they were walking it. It was terrifying because the way out for them was the first time I could have truly been in their line of sight. They never saw me, though. I watched them once they passed me head back up the mountain from where I assume they originally came from. I waited for 30 minutes or so and booked it out of there so fast. Follow our social channels on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at disturbed
4: underscore pod. And a big-time shout-out to our newest Plus members, Marianne Wagner, Rob Strothman, Naomi Garcia, Ghost Lover, Nicole Bryant, Brianna Poston, Gene Cheek, Zombie Hunter 872 Sarah, Shannon McKnight, Ellie, Rachel Germershausen, and Leslie Young, if you enjoyed the show, please consider joining Plus at disturbedpodcast.com/plus. But if you can't, you can leave us a positive rating and review on your favorite listening platform. Share your own true horror story at disturbedpodcast.com, and don't forget we have a hotline as well where you can share your own story, hotline.disturbedpodcast.com. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio and Co. AG. And until next time, Stay safe out there, y'all.